Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is advocate and human resources professional Ralph Kellogg. In the show, Kellogg talks about coming to terms with being gay, coping with mental health challenges, and advocating for others in the face of persistent prejudice and stigma. Kellogg also shares his grief at the death of a close teenage friend, while at the same time learning about love. My goal is to have any person in the company in which I'm working say, I love working here. This feeds my my heart or my purpose in some way. That's what I want people to come to work with and feel because if you're wanting to get the best out of people, if people are truly your most valuable asset, then they should love where they work and they should be excited to share that with people. Listeners are advised that the conversation in this episode references suicidal thoughts, mental health challenges, and domestic abuse. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. With over 20 years in the areas of human resources and people management and leadership, Ralph Kellogg is currently the Vice President for People and Training at Lutheran Family Services. Kellogg is an advocate in the areas of LGBTQ rights and belonging at work, and frequently speaks to and consults with organizations on the subjects of authenticity and how leaders can help team members who are challenged by anxiety and panic within the workplace. Kellogg has had articles published in Forbes.com, the Society for Human Resources Management blog, and the HR Gazette. Ralph Kellogg, welcome to Lives. Thank you. Nice to be here. Could we start literally at the beginning? Would you share a little bit about your childhood? What stands out to you as you look back on that? Sure. So I was uh, an only child. Uh, raised by a single parent uh, in the in the 1970s definition of a Gen X latchkey kid, and for the most part had a great childhood. Uh, did not grow up with a lot of material possessions, but uh, my mom loved me and was a great support and a great uh, role model. Uh, my mom did not have the uh, advantage of a formal education, so uh, was a high school graduate and uh, worked throughout her life to um, provide for us. So uh, while I never necessarily went without, there weren't a lot of uh, luxuries around, uh, so to speak. Um, my mom was a survivor of domestic violence. And so as I grew up, I was keenly aware of trauma that she carried with her. So as an example, if, you know, I had, if I went up to, you know, put my, put her hands in my face and, and, and give her a kiss on the cheek or hug her, I remember early on um, her flinching away and then later explaining to me what that was. And so while uh, she was a great provider and a good and a good mom, 
there were definitely, I think, some mental health issues that she hadn't worked out. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've said openly when she was when she was angry, uh, those those sometimes could be classified as her good days, and when she was very angry, those sometimes could be classified as her bad days. So, uh, definitely, definitely a lot there, but definitely a good person at heart. I think um, if I'm thinking back on my life, uh, especially early on, my my experiences were were like any kid growing up in the 1980s, um, being gay, being different. So I remember uh, being bullied in school, uh, having all of the things that uh, kids deal with in school in terms of of bullying, trauma, and things along those lines, and then losing my best friend at the age of 15 due to uh, due to an accident and knowing that uh, he cared and and accepted me for who I was despite uh, some of the things that had been tossed around in school about me being gay or or things along those lines so uh, overall I would say it was good there are parts of it that uh, are definitely memorable uh, and I think parts that helped shape me into uh, the person that I am today things I still carry with me what was joyful about your childhood. What did you do? How did you recognize that life was, you know, lush and fun and could be full of something that wasn't some of these experiences that you've shared that were on the, uh, you know, more challenging traumatic side? Mm -hmm. Books um, became a avenue for me very early on to recognize that there was something beyond where I was. And so I learned very, very young that uh, books could carry me places and take me into other worlds. And it also opened the door for me to think about possibility. What do I want my life to look like? Animals were another uh, another joy. Uh, my mom never denied me having an animal. So at one point, I think I had four parakeets and four dogs and a cat, and it looked like a menagerie uh, or some sort of really bad spoof of Dr. Doolittle, but that's what my house looked like. Um, and so that, that was wonderful. And I also, I also had really good friends uh, growing up. And so I knew what I experienced in my home wasn't what everyone experienced in their home. Uh, and wonderful, wonderful mentors uh, and teachers. I went to an inner city school, uh, Northeast High School in Kansas City, and someone asked me one time who who my my mentors were in school, who my teachers were, and I look back on on my life and every single person that I can point to that impacted uh, my life in a positive way or, or pushed me forward were predominantly female black professionals in the school district. Um, from my assistant vice principal, Valerie Griffin, to my ninth grade English teacher, Evelyn Hunt, who told me I had a gift for writing, to my drama teacher, these women all pushed me forward uh, and encouraged me, uh, and I've I, I've always been grateful for that. That's just something that stuck with me. How did that at the beginning show up? How did you, at those sort of tender early ages, as we're forming our sense of self, start to realize that there were those aspects of you that perhaps bucked the trend of what society expects and perhaps what the 
situation around you, the kids around you were showing up with and for and about? I knew I was different early on. I didn't. I didn't behave like other little other uh, other little boys behaved. So I I read. Um, I played with dolls. Um, I liked art. I I liked music. Um, I would play with other kids in the neighborhood, primarily other girls, but not the girls that were into sports. They scared me. I played with girls who did like jacks and hopscotch and things along those lines. I also did things. Um, that didn't really involve me getting dirty. If it was something where I could go out and have fun, then I was all about that. But in terms of sports or things along those lines, I just didn't do that. And so when you're around a group of kids, um, especially when you get to be 10, 11, 12 years old, um, you become the, the, um, the, 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 the sticking point for ridicule, you become the odd person out. And I knew even before I hit middle school age that I was different, but it became problematic and really, um, scary for me at times when I got into the middle school at sixth, seventh, eighth grade, uh, were probably the worst times for me. So I knew early on. And was that realization also about your sexual orientation or was this just more confusion about the ways that you like to be that's a great question i think it was both i think i knew that i was gay but i didn't know what to call it i also knew that whatever feelings I had, um, that it was not safe to voice them. It was definitely not safe in the area that I grew up in, um, with working class families, um, you know, who, who didn't readily embrace gay people. There were no gay people that I knew, um, in, in the areas that I grew up in, um, school, family, or otherwise. So I just didn't feel safe doing that. Um, and, you know, piling that on with, I don't like to play sports, I don't behave like other boys, um, things along those lines, you you sort of open yourself up for um, people, you know, um, making the butt of jokes or making you the butt of, of uh, something that's, you know, not necessarily nice or warm. And, um, y you know, you begin to wonder yourself, well, if they say that I am this, then maybe I am. Um, and so all of that plays into it as well. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of confusion, uh, self-loathing, um, a, a lot of um, just quiet desperation to not be um, different um, and very much want to be part of the, of the bigger, of the, of the bigger scheme of things. Back then, as you were finding your way, how did you navigate that rather more tense situation of having a feeling of who you were and were becoming as a person, while at the same time having to hide that and keep that secret as a matter of personal safety, but also as a matter of, uh, in some ways, denying that side of yourself for your own well-being in, in the larger world mm -hmm. two things um really leaning into being an overachiever so extracurricular activities grades if i could find something to take the attention off of what made me different then i became less of a target 
The other thing that I learned to rely on very early on to manage home uh, and to manage the world around me was humor. I had to find a way to, if I was in a situation, uh, to uh, to navigate it the best way that I knew how. And humor was always something that I was able to rely on. Uh, it also made me less of a target as well, because if I could be funny, if I could provide some levity to a situation, then people weren't as inclined to focus on how different I was or how how different I felt I was among all of them. And so excelling and humor i would say were really sort of my life preservers as i as i grew up in even high school and into college you did share something else about those teenage years which is the loss of a close friend mm-hmm. and how some of these experiences have shaped you what did happen and and how did that affect how you see yourself in the world that instant, that that situation impacted me a great deal. So uh, my friend Tommy, uh, I met him when I was uh, a freshman in high school. And he was he was big man on campus. Everybody loved him. Uh, he was only a sophomore, but he had a, a larger than life personality. He was fun, and he brought this really uh, fun energy with him. And people gravitated toward him for some reason. Uh, I was one of those people. Uh, he and I were both in ROTC. And uh, I had only intended to take ROTC for a year, got into it, really enjoyed it, and our paths crossed. And uh, he knew at that time what people said about me uh, and, you know, the, the derogatory terms of, you know, oh, you know, Ralph is gay, Ralph is this, Ralph is that. He still went out of his way to be kind, to be nice, to uh, to form a friendship. The following year, uh, he and I were in the same section of ROTC or the same class, and our friendship just sort of took off. I I can't point uh, to a day or a moment when we became friends. It was one of those things where we connected that first day, and we were just always friends. And uh Unfortunately, the friendship was 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 short lived. It was it was about nine months. Uh, we decided to go to senior ditch day or leave school for senior ditch day. Uh, I wasn't a senior, neither was he. But you know, it was senior ditch day, so you do what you what you should do. And uh, alcohol was involved, and we went to a lake. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we were drinking, and he consumed quite a bit of alcohol. Uh, that day, and he drowned. And uh, it was it was incredibly traumatic because as he as he was you know in the lake, you know bobbing up and down in the water, he was asking me things like, "Aren't you going to save me? Um, you know, don't you love me?" Things along those lines. And I kept trying to tell him, "You know, stay where you are. I'll come and get you." But the more I, I tried to get to him, the farther and farther he went out, um, and and then finally he went under for the last time. And that was probably the most traumatic thing that I had ever gone through, and up to that point, and. 
remember remember people asking me get over it move on um you know i he was your friend we get it but you know months would pass and and i still was i was not cycling out of this depression that i was in only realizing one day when i when i felt as though i i probably would need to take my own life at some point because i was so depressed and i couldn't cycle out of this that a light clicked on and i realized that i was in love it wasn't it wasn't that i loved him it wasn't that he was my friend i did but i was in love with him and he was my first person that i was ever in love with and it was it was strictly a friendship um but i didn't i didn't in my in my mind at that time realize the depth of it and um interestingly enough i had always wondered if i had made the impact on his life that he had on mine and about a year after he passed uh, i had a dream about him and it was the only time uh, up to that point and only time since that i've dreamed about him that he came uh you know obviously in a in a dream state and uh we were we were arguing about something i don't remember what it was but at the end of the dream he put his arm around my shoulder and he hugged me and and he he didn't have a motorcycle when I knew him, but he got on a motorcycle and drove away. And it was at that point when I woke up after realizing it was a dream that I thought, oh, he he cared about me. He came back and said goodbye. Uh, and so um, that really shaped me um, in terms of how I viewed the world uh, and in terms of the way that I try to relate to people and try to understand that everybody's coming to the table with something different. And what they present uh, on the outside is probably only scratching the surface of who they are as a person or what they've gone through. So that event shaped me into um, hopefully being a more empathetic and caring person uh, because I've been there and I know what that's like. So sorry to hear about that. Loss. Thank you. Did you have a sense that Tommy opened up something within you that showed you you could have this revelatory breadth of emotion that we might think of as love in in all its forms? Yes, although I didn't, I didn't think about it at the time. Uh, I was fifteen, fifteen, sixteen when he when he passed away. Um, I didn't think about it at the time. What I realized uh, after after his passing was what a gift he had been, and uh, that even though it was a it was a brief amount of time, what what I also feel like is he showed me that there's a capacity to go out and in life and and craft it and make it yours and enjoy every single moment of it while you can because it's fleeting uh, i think as i've gotten older that sense has come back to me as you know as as an adult and you know you lose people in your life how fleeting uh the the time can be and i remember looking back on my on my time with him uh, and thinking it was only nine months but he opened my eyes to the possibility of love the possibility of a deep connection and friendship, and the, the the possibility that even if it ends in the physical realm, you carry it with you. It's it's. I mean, that happened in 1985. I think about him, if not every day, at least 
you know, a few times a week. Uh, I think about the impact he had on my life and I would never want to go through something like that again, but I'm so grateful for the gift that, that, uh, that, it, that it instilled. Yeah. When was it that you felt able to be open about being gay? That happened uh, when I, not by choice, uh, that happened when I was 19 and I was in college and had a, a college crush on a friend that obviously wasn't reciprocated and I attempted suicide. And at the time that I attempted suicide, I did it uh, in a somewhat public place. I had taken pills and I staggered out into the college dormitory lobby. Uh, and, uh, you know, very, very grateful that I was given help and medical attention arrived. Um, but they, you know, it, through the course of conversations, through the course of, of talking with people, uh, people found out, uh, in, in, you know, my, my school, uh, that it was due to a boy that I had a crush on and, uh, things sort of escalated from that point. And this was in 1989. Uh, so not, uh, in, in going to a, a private Midwestern school, not a lot of openness and uh, support for, you know, folks who identified as gay. And so while people knew they were nice to me, um, but they weren't exactly accepting of me. And so that was um, a rude awakening. And I think my mindset back at that time was, at least they're not running me out of school. At least I'm not getting beaten up. Um, at least, you know, terrible things aren't happening to me. So if I'm not everyone's, you know, uh, friend to hang out with, at least um, I'm not, you know, worried about my physical safety or things along those lines. So it was almost a sense of I'm getting less than, but getting less than is better than uh, the alternative, which could be, you know, fear of my safety, fear of my uh, mental well-being, things along those lines. So I, I finally did come out when I was 22 and I was graduated from school and found a group of friends uh, that uh, supported and cared about me. Uh, and interestingly enough, I graduated from college in August of 1992 and met my now husband in November of that year. So it, it I mean, things happened very, very quickly, uh, surprisingly for me. Uh, and, I, and I'm very grateful, but uh, it was a, it was a, a bit of coming out. And I think that year, yes, I came out in August, I turned 22 in October, and I met my now husband in November. So a lot of stuff happened that fall. Yeah, all good stuff. Life now and society now is perhaps different than it was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But maybe these gains aren't as significant as I think. We have the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, constitutional rights for same-sex marriage. But perhaps there are many people that aren't me that see some of the at least at least at least gains perhaps being whittled away. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have a sense of reassurance about your life and who you are now 
or if there's a degree of anxiety about some of those concerns and trials you experienced when you were younger being more manifest again uh, in, in today's environment? Yes, I would say yes and. So uh, having the advantage of being um, a 50-something-year-old um, compared to a 15-year-old, uh, it, it definitely provides its advantages. And so I don't I don't have the the foreboding that I once might have had. Uh, I'm also afforded a lot of advantage in society. Um, I'm I'm a white male. Um, I'm I'm reasonably educated. I have a good job, uh, and so unless we were doing a conversation like this, or unless you knew that I was gay, uh, I there would be there would be many many um, doors open to me because of my advantage, my privilege, and I know that. So um, I I'm I'm able to walk into spaces that some people may not feel comfortable doing so. Where I find myself getting really concerned in our world now is the attack that has happened with trans youth, with our trans citizens, our trans brothers, and our trans sisters uh, within our community. The divisiveness, the hatred, the um, the animosity that shore, that's shown toward people, their people, um, simply because they don't identify uh, with uh, the gender to which they were born is is just so disheartening and it's so upsetting and it's sad. Um, you know, people in the trans community uh, are, are dying. Uh, they're being murdered at an alarming rate. And so I look and think if this were happening to any other group within the United States, this would be cause for some sort of, of call to action. How do we stop this? How do we prevent this? What do we do? And it feels like unless uh, people uh, in the LGBTQ plus, uh, Q plus S community are raising these concerns that, um, you know, calls for their protections just aren't listened to, they aren't, aren't heard. And I just... I. I I struggle with that. I really, really struggle with that. So while things for me as a white gay man may be better, there are also people in my community who are still struggling, who are dying, who are um, trying to have their voices heard. And that, that sticks with me. That sticks with me a lot. Specifically then with mental well-being, you've talked about your own experiences with panic and anxiety. So perhaps you could just clarify a little bit about what were the circumstances of, of those uh, experiences and how and when did they start? Mm -hmm. I would say knowing what I know now, um, after the benefit of a lot of therapy and um, a lot of personal reflection, they started when I was a kid. Um, uh, my, As I said, my mom, uh, my mom had um, a lot of abusive tendencies. Um, she relied on a standard mechanism for communication. And when she was angry, it was either shown physically, you know, through through um, beatings, or it was, you know, just this, this volatile anger, I would call them rage attacks. Um, and I, I got very good um, at reading a room, I got very good of knowing when I was when I walked in from school or walked into a room, 
the mannerisms that she had, her tone of voice, the way that she answered certain things. So I learned to adjust my behavior very quickly based on her mood. When I got into school, again, learning to read the room, learning who was a friend and who was a foe, who I could interact with, who I could engage with, and and feel safe. And so again, learning my audience, all the way through to the point where I was in my career and was actually outed at work when I was 35. And up until this point, whenever I would feel out of sorts, whenever I would feel nervous or anxious, I always, you know, just thought it was how I was wired. I would get sweaty. My heart would race. I just had this sense of foreboding come over me that something bad was going to happen. So you hear people that will talk about, you know, I thought I was going to die or I felt this, this sense come over me that something was going to happen. I was in that state a lot and I just accepted it as just being me. I just thought, well, this is just who I am. And then when I was 35, I was outed, uh, as I said, at work. My then boss called my house one night, and this was before everyone was attached to cell phones. And so she called the landline, and uh, my husband answered the phone. And she, I think, just put two and two together and realized that this was my spouse or, you know, my significant other. The next day, she brought me into her office and uh, said, you know, I, I really want you to unburden yourself. It's okay not to feel ashamed. Um, it's okay, you know, that, that you are who you are and there's no harm in that. And really forcing me to the point where I felt like, I feel like I have to tell you this, you know, because of no other choice. I, I just didn't know what to do. And I remember in that instance being very sweaty and, and having this, this anxiety wash over me. And all I wanted to do was for this experience to be over. So I said, yes, I'm gay. Yes, that's my partner that you spoke to was my partner at the time. And I thought that that would be the end of it. What happened was I was an assistant vice president then, and I was on doing pretty well for myself at that point, but projects began disappearing, advancement opportunities began disappearing, and while I wasn't fired, I was marginalized in my role significantly. It didn't happen overnight, but if you looked at it from you know the year prior to where I was, you could see the you could see the down the downhill spiral take place. All the while, reviews had been good. All the while, comments and and uh, things related to my performance had been good. And so um, I remember carrying uh, that that with me uh, and realizing that the workplace, for all of its talk of equality and fairness and equity isn't that way for everyone. And so even now, as someone who is viewed in a, in a position of leadership within my organization and is viewed um, as someone who is responsible for influencing culture and helping to make change, I always try to put myself back in the space of, is it this way for everyone? Or am I assuming, because of my now elevated role in 
corporate America or whatever term you want to use that because if it's okay for me, then it must be okay for everyone. So it's constantly coming back and doing that check of when we think it's right for you, does, does it, is it just you or is it everyone? And how do you invite and bring everyone to the table um, to have a voice uh, and to ensure that your reality of what you think is fair is actually what they believe is fair and equitable? And then how do you bridge that gap? So you are in a people-facing role and you carry a responsibility for how people uh, show up in an organizational setting. But also in some ways it feels to me that you, in a human resource function, have to be a role model for that organization's professed values and beliefs. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that responsibility now? as this role model for these best professed values? You walk a fine line when you do it, because um, as someone who works in the area of human resources, you have your foot in both camps. You have to work to protect the organization legally and from a compliance standpoint, but you also recognize that the most important asset within any organization is its people. So what I try to do more than anything is listen, is to provide a voice to people who feel as though they can't or who may not be comfortable addressing authority within the within an organization and i also try to invite in other voices into the into the company um, for different perspectives i sometimes think that organizations can embrace their culture so much that they forget that there are other ways of doing things outside the four walls in which they operate so bringing in organizations that uh, support diversity equity and inclusion as an example. I can talk about it all day long, but my perspective as a gay man doesn't necessarily equate to that of a black female who's working in corporate America, doesn't necessarily equate to someone who is dealing maybe with a disability. So I think it's important to bring those voices in. And I think by bringing those different types of experiences in, allowing people to the opportunity to connect with others to, you know, uh, evolve their own personal belief system, their own worldview, helps to model that example because you can point back and look to to say, it may that be that way here, but it's not that way everywhere. So let's have a bigger and honest discussion about, you know, where we are today and where we want to be, um, knowing that uh, there are different possibilities out there that exist. So I think breaking down the um, insular walls uh, within an organization and really inviting those conversations, even if they're uncomfortable, really helps to model the behavior that you would be looking for in others. Why did you choose to begin a career in human resources? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't choose human resources. I feel like human resources chose me in the best way. I started off in the days of call center management. I was the person working in, in call centers and doing different things like managing different campaigns for credit card companies. We we managed things like the Wonderbed and and different clients, uh, and then went into banking. I did IT. I did project management, but where I where I always came back to um, was HR. Uh, and I had an opportunity from a wonderful person uh, that I worked with. 
um, in a prior organization, she uh, was promoted and she gave me an opportunity. Um, and she said, this is if this is what you want to do, uh, you seem to have the practical experience to do this. I will work with you to teach you the rest. Uh, and she did. And I will always be grateful to her uh, for doing that. She and I no longer work together, but I will always be grateful for that opportunity. And it, and, and once I got in it and got over my, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm having imposter syndrome. This was not the right move for me. I really enjoyed it. I, I love working with organizations to shape cultures, to shape teams. My goal, uh, and I just shared this with uh, a group last week, is to have any person in the company in which I'm working say, I love working here. This feeds my my heart or my purpose in some way. That's what I want people to come to work with and feel because if you're wanting to get the best out of people, if people are truly your most valuable asset, and companies say that all the time, then they should love where they work and they should be excited to share that with people. You last year delivered a TEDx talk. And, I did. And it was aimed at sharing this idea that we should normalize conversations around our mental well-being mm -hmm. in our organizations and our workplaces. What are you trying to share? What are you, what's the core message that you're trying to not only share with an audience, but also trying to inculcate in the organizations that you're directly involved with? So um, the TEDx talk came out of uh, the COVID pandemic that we all went through. And the HR community uh, within Omaha is is wonderful, and we're all very supportive of each other because we all, regardless of the company that we're working for or with, face the same kinds of challenges. And so I had just, I am thinking here, I was only with Lutheran Family Services for about three or four months when, you know, the true lockdown uh, came on and, and we were, we were uh, you know, sequestered. Um, and by the true lockdown, I mean, there had been talk about going back to work. Uh, I had interviewed online and met my manager online, but there had always been some talk about going back to, to the office at some point. Well, um, at this point, there was no going back to the office. We were doing everything remotely. And I was getting calls from people inside the uh, inside Lutheran uh, and outside of the organization saying, what advice do you have to help people? You know, people are feeling isolated and disconnected. And, you know, what do you what do you suggest? And, you know, I say this in my TEDx talk because it's true. I really believe that people were getting through the pandemic the same way that I was, you know, binge shopping on Amazon, eating like you were in your own after school special and watching Tiger King. That's what I thought people were doing. I didn't have any advice to give people. I had I had not one iota to share. And then as it went on, um, and I'm getting, I'm getting phone calls from people and chatting with people in the community. We're doing these little wine zoom happy hours and everyone's kind of going through the same thing. My anxiety started to ratchet up and my panic started to ratchet up. And I remember sitting down one day and creating what I called the ACT model, which stands for acknowledge compassionate accountability and uh, transparency. And what I wanted to do and why I thought it was so important is I wanted to begin coaching people to pretend 
that anxiety, to pretend that panic, to pretend that uh, depression is not going on in this completely upside down world that we're living in right now is to not acknowledge what's happening. And by not acknowledging it, you're diminishing people and you're making them feel as though something's wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with them. And so I really wanted to normalize that to say, just acknowledge it, just say, we get it. We understand that people are struggling right now. Let's talk about it. Or if you're struggling and you don't want to talk about it in front of a room full of people, go see someone in HR. Talk to your manager. Talk. Let's go to EAP. Let's let's do something. And what what struck me um, through the through the conversations as I'm trying to um, coach people to do this is I would have managers say. I have no idea how to talk to somebody who's struggling with their mental health and, you know, that, that might violate all kinds of laws and, and I don't know what to do and, you know, things along those lines. And I said, but it doesn't violate a law if you ask someone how their chemotherapy treatment's going and it doesn't violate a law if you ask them how their ulcer is or things along those lines. I said, this doesn't need to be hard. If someone has said to you they're struggling with depression, they're struggling with anxiety, give them the same respect you would any other person um, who's who's struggling with their physical or mental well-being and say, listen, you told me you were struggling with anxiety. You know, how are you doing? And if you don't want to talk to me right now, that's okay. But no, my door is open and I'm here to listen whenever you whenever you want. I said that piece of acknowledgement and that invitation to conversation is generally all people need to feel as though they're being supported. Uh, and so it was really working through preconceived notions about these topics should be taboo in the workplace or they're shameful or we need to keep the keep these these topics in the dark or use euphemisms with them. And I'm just about saying, you know, if someone has said they're suffering from anxiety, call it out, call it what it is. Um, if they felt comfortable enough to tell you, be respectful enough to call it what it is because it's a real issue for them and it deserves real conversation. So that's really what I was trying to convey. Somehow our mental well-being does seem to carry these stigmas. And so you've talked about how supervisors, managers, people leaders need to be open to a conversation with someone and not shy away from it. But also those people that are experiencing some sort of um, challenge around their mental well-being, I would imagine it's really tough for them to be able to open up in an organizational setting. I see that tension and I, I don't know how to frame that or mm -hmm. to speak to people about mm -hmm. opening up and shining some sunlight on that. Mm -hmm. I think that it really starts in the organization with your organization's leadership. So I'm fortunate enough to work in a behavioral health environment. And so the stigma that would, that, that might surround um, people in, you know, other organizations is not there. But I think even if you look at some of the larger Fortune 500 companies at the time that um, COVID was predominant, um, they were um, becoming uh, more vocal um, in their support of emotional well-being, of mental well-being in the workplace. Leaders have to talk about it, um, and leaders have to be um, open and honest uh, with the culture that they're trying to create. And so it has to be done more uh, than once a year during Mental Health Awareness Month. It has to be 
how are you doing? Are you know, are you taking care of yourself? And if someone says, you know, I'm struggling right now, put down the cup of coffee, um, you know, put your planner aside and say, let's talk about that. Or do you need to talk about it? And be sincere in those moments and in those efforts. Um, because a lot of times, um, you know, when someone says, I'm not doing too well right now, we, our eyes dart for the nearest exit about how do I get out of this? Um, because I, I just, I don't, I can't do this right now. But most of the time, all people want is just an ear um, and someone to, uh, you know, say it's going to be okay. Or have you thought about doing this? Or have you thought about maybe taking a couple of days off and and going and rejuvenating and recharging? Many times, what I find with people um, is that they just want to know that they've been seen and they want that they want to know that they've been heard. That. They're more than just their physicality. They're more than just the person that shows up and works in the cube. They're a person and they're bringing all of their personal issues, all of their history with them to work each and every day. And they want to know that in times of stress or crisis, that a place that they give so much of their lives to, and we work, we, I mean, we spend 33% of our lives at work. They want to know that the, you know, who they're giving their time and energy to that they're appreciated, they're cared for. So I'm curious about what makes you hopeful that perhaps the nature of the conversations we have, certainly in our organizational settings, but broadly, is not only shifting for the better, but we can sustain that progress. Conversations like this, where we're having people who are being invited to speak about the challenges that they've had in their lives, and letting them know that they're supported, that they're welcomed, uh, and that they're recognized. I also think that um, as we look toward, um, you know, the future where we want the world to be, I think even though the pandemic isolated us in some ways, I want to say that it helped us be a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more mindful, a little bit more thoughtful about how we treat ourselves and treat each other. And so while I am not suggesting or um, wanting another two years of isolation, I think what makes me hopeful um, is the fact that we saw the worst. We saw what happens when things get shut down. We saw the divisiveness that occurred between people during those times, but we also saw people people like those in California who celebrated the healthcare workers. We saw people, um, you know, rally together and say, what can I do to help you? Um, we saw people when they were originally getting ill with COVID, um, people in my neighborhood or people that I would see online say, I'll drop groceries off to you. Um, I, I'll, I'll do a Zoom call with you just to make sure you're okay. All of those things spoke of and speak to me about compassion and community. And I believe that's there, and I believe it's more pronounced than it was before, because we had to do that um, in order to get through it as a collective. And so my hope is in people. My hope is um, that there's a lot of good in the world, and there are a lot of good people in the world. And I always believe, and I know this sounds very Pollyannic, Pollyannish, I think is how you say it, but I, I, I just believe good wins out. I, I do, and I believe the goodness in people will always shine through. How do you see yourself as a leader if you do? What does that mean to you now? It's changed. 
when I was coming up in my career, a leader was sort of that captain of industry person. Um, and I never thought that I could be that person because I wasn't straight and um, I didn't come from a certain pedigree and I didn't know how to navigate those waters, so to speak. And so I sort of set that to one side and, and thought, well, I'll never be a CEO or I'll never have a position of leadership in an organization because I just don't fit that mold. I didn't think I could fit that mold. So I just sort of set that to one side. Now that I have been blessed with uh, success, I've had a lot of wonderful people in my, in my life take a chance on me um, and support me. Uh, and encourage me. I look at leadership as something completely different. Leadership, um, in my mind, means that you are open and honest and authentic with yourself so you can be that way with other people. And doing that kind of self-examination does take a lot of courage because sometimes you uncover things you don't necessarily like and that you know need to be changed. But I think people offer so much grace when you are in in recognition of, I didn't do this well, I need to do it better, or I stubbed my toe here and I could have done things a little bit better. So I look at leadership as being sort of this um, evolutionary track that we're all on, not just professionally, but personally. I think as we, um, you know, sort of embrace, um, you know, the the unknown, it gives us the opportunity to either shrink back or to move forward. Um, and I just choose to to move forward because I know that there are there are good things on the other side. Do you feel like you are now at a position in your life where you are living authentically with yourself? Yeah, I do. I do. It's taken a long time to get there. A lot of good experiences, bad experiences, but I wouldn't trade any any of those things because it's it's given me the courage to know at the end of the day that I'm leaning into the best version of myself. I don't say the final version because I think everybody continues to evolve, but right now, today, I'm leaning into the best version of myself and doing the very best that I can and not trying to be the person who feels like they need to know it all or should know it all, um, but just trying to say, um, there are things I know, there are things I don't know that I'm willing to learn, and I'm going to give it the best effort that I possibly can to just keep improving and moving forward every day. And that feels authentic to me. My guest today has been community advocate and HR professional, Ralph Kellogg. Ralph, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review.
If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.